Welcome to This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for over 24 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm a writer, podcast host, and accountability coach. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about eight years now. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 47 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking about diabetes alert dogs. A quick reminder for everyone, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes, please leave us a comment or send an email to colleen at inspiredforward.com. We answer listener questions in future episodes. Jesse, you are up with our win of the week. All right. So in preparation for my big hiking trip in July to the Grand Canyon, Zion, and Bryce, I went on a 10-mile hike this last Sunday. Although it was on flat ground and it was pretty easy, I could definitely feel it the next day in my legs and my lower back. It felt really good, and I just can't wait to do it again. How are your blood sugars on that? Oh, they were really good. Um, So I kind of had like the temp target for a while doing it, and then I was kind of dropping in and out lower than I kind of wanted to be. So I just kind of suspended it for like an hour or so just to get it up a little bit, and then I was fine for the rest of the day. So you didn't have any low snacks to bring that up? I didn't want to push it like it wasn't low enough to have a low snack but it wasn't high enough for me to feel safe without checking on it a bunch that's good yeah so what's our fail of the week Colleen well my fail is that I keep having multiple compression lows at night because of how I sleep on one side with my sensor pressed straight down into the mattress it has to do with where I put it on my arm it registered as 46 MDDL the other night, and it was, I think, either straight arrow down or is uh, arrow angled down. But I knew that it was a compression low, so I ignored it. And that was also the night where my sensor had cut out a, cu- a couple times. So on Dexcom, it does three dashes on the indicator screen to tell you that it can't read the sensor. And that's just an indication that something's wrong with the sensor. And it happens occasionally when the sensor is failing, but it was the last day, so I didn't get too worried about it. It's only if you go three hours or more with with no readings that you should call Dexcom, and I hadn't gotten anywhere near three hours without it coming back, so that was my fail. Do you think you'll change the spot where you put it on your arm? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) It's too convenient where I put it. Well, there you go. What is our hack this week? So our hack this week is for our lovely listener hikers and travelers and like extraordinary busy people. So my hack this week is instead of carrying around a big backpack or a big purse when you're going on uh, hikes or long walks is to carry around a fanny pack. I have one that I got off of Poshmark for about $2.50 and it's a Jansport. It just, it's a little clip-on bag. It's like the ones we wear at camp where you got two big pouches and a little pouch in front to keep some snacks. It's really great. I use mine for hiking and walking. And for me, it's the best way so that I don't have to feel a bunch of weight on my back or feel any uncomfortability after a couple of hours of walking or doing activities. 
I have a, a running fanny pack with two water bottle spots. So that's also a good option. When I was uh, doing my couch to 5K, I would run with that and I'd have Smarties stuffed in the back with my phone. <laughs> I also love having our camp fanny packs. Like camp is the only time I'll legit wear a fanny pack besides running. They are so like comfortable, but at the same time, by the end of the week, they're kind of falling apart at the seams. <laughs> oh, the camp, the camp fanny packs are old and I, I do think they need to be replaced. That's why I actually bought my own. So I, I bring my own fanny pack and it's much higher quality. That's where I got mine too. Also, I would recommend if you're looking not to spend a lot of money and just trying it out, I would definitely go and get a pre-used one from somebody or like secondhand kind of just try it out, see if you're comfortable with it. So you're not spending tons of money, but you know, trying something new. And now with everybody cleaning out their houses from being stuck inside for three months, I'm pretty sure all the Goodwills and Valley Villages will have plenty of things to choose from. Oh yeah. We'll be adding to it. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the episode. First, we're going to answer a question that Jesse posed, which is, before researching this, what did we know or think we know about diabetic alert dogs? I actually know someone who has a really beautiful golden retriever as her diabetes alert dog, so I know a little bit about it. He wears a service animal jacket, and I only pet him after I ask his owner and I get permission. He's also never alerted for me, but that's probably because I haven't been around him enough or around him when my blood sugars change. The extent of my knowledge really is that they smell the chemical changes that happen when a blood sugar goes from normal to low or from normal to high. I've thought about getting a diabetic alert dog, but it was never something we seriously considered when I was growing up, even though I love dogs and we had dogs. And it's mostly because they are really expensive to train. None of our dogs when I was growing up ever learned how to detect my blood sugars, even by accident. Also, in my 20 years at Panther Camp, which is our diabetes summer camp, We've never had a camper come through who has an alert dog with them. It's possible that some campers have alert dogs at home, but being in the camp environment would just overwhelm an, any alert dog, not just because of all the other diabetics, but also because of the chaos of small children wanting to pet a dog and not really understanding what a service vest means. And for me, when I was in middle school, I actually knew a kid who had a service dog that would alert him of highs and low blood sugars. And he would have it on a leash all the way through school. I'd see him before and after classes. It was really cool. So I have very little experience with them, but I know a little bit as well just from being around the dog and the kid being in like the nurse's office together a lot. So when the dog was at school, he always wore his vest and we were not allowed to touch him unless the owner explicitly gave direction in the okay to say so. I just want to add this as well. Whenever an animal of any sort is wearing a service vest, you always have to ask the owner for explicit permission before going to pet them because the animal is on duty. It is working. It's like coming up to a cashier and asking if, if you can braid their hair or something when they're on duty. Like it's just, that's kind of the correlation of what a service dog is doing. So the way he worked was the dog would smell the boy's blood sugar and he would put a paw on the boy's shoe if his blood sugar was going lower and then the kid would test and eat something but he would I believe bark or nip or something when his blood sugar was going a little bit higher. I'm not exactly sure on that one I couldn't quite remember but even if the dog stayed home with the boy's parents he would be able to alert the mom of the dog from about five miles away that the kid's blood sugar was either going high or low 
So I thought that was pretty interesting. And one time, this is a fun story, he smelt another girl's blood sugar from five miles away and alerted his mom at home that one of the kids was low at school. Now, they didn't realize there was another girl's blood sugar until she tested in class and later told the nurse, hey, I was low in class. I just wanted to let you know. And then they put two and two together and realized that the diabetic dog was smelling the other girl's blood sugar because she had been around him for so long because they were friends too. That is insane. Yeah, it was pretty intense. I thought it was cool. I never let the dog smell my blood sugar just because I didn't know what was going to happen or if that was okay with the boy or the boy's parents. So I just kind of never. How would you even know if you could prevent the dog from sniffing your blood sugar if it alerted for a different girl five miles away? There was like a certain way that they, in quotes, calibrate the dog to smell someone's blood sugar is like, I think you breathe on them and then they have it smell your blood too. I, I'm not quite sure how it worked, but there was some talk about it and I just never really wanted that. So just didn't, don't breathe on the dog. Right? I was just kind of like, I don't want you to get confused and I'm sorry. And I'm not sure if that's, you know, that, that was the car- part of the training or whatever. But yeah, so that was just kind of my experience with the service dog. Diabetes alert dogs are service dogs trained specifically to assist people with diabetes detect low and high blood sugars, and they do this with their noses. They can sniff out the chemical changes that occur when the blood sugar swings in either direction, even when you're asleep, which is probably the most valuable time to have an alert dog. Dogs' noses are 100 million times more sensitive than a human nose, and that might explain why it could sniff from five miles away. Diabetes alert dogs alert in different ways depending on how they're trained. They can be trained to alert differently for highs versus lows. Examples include pawing, licking, and nudging, but also barking, which might be a problem for some people. Diabetic alert dogs are abbreviated as DADS, which I find kind of cute. But DADS go everywhere with their person. They're lifelong commitments for the life of the dog. They're your responsibility 24-7, and they still need all the care that pets do, even if they have a specific job besides being your companion. Most training organizations use Labradors, Golden Retrievers, Poodles, and Labradoodles, but I'm not sure if this precludes any breed from being a diabetes alert dog. So how do you find a diabetes alert dog? Unfortunately, it's not as simple as going to the animal shelter, picking out a dog, and getting him or her trained. You technically could do that, but the temperament of the dog matters. If the dog that you want to be your alert dog just isn't up to the task, then the training investment could be a waste of time and money. There are specific organizations that are licensed and provide accredited training to their dogs. We'll also provide a list of organizations and resources that Beyond Type 1 has published. Sometimes family pets can learn this on their own and start alerting even without official training. Now, I'm not sure if these dogs are allowed to wear service vests without going through the training, but I've heard a few stories from other diabetics about how their family pet started alerting them or started bringing a meter or a bag of food to them when they're low. There is no like solid organization on how or where to register a service animal at because it's private information and the federal government doesn't necessarily have the right to access those. So it's still legal to get service animal vests on Amazon, Walmart, basically any online retailer or even some quote black market kind of thing. Don't abuse it. (laughs) Right. So if your dog or animal does start alerting you, I would say. 
don't bring it and don't get a service vest for it because it's not trained properly. That That's just all I'm saying is just, you know, be aware of situations. That's kind of a side tangent is that you can get emotional support animal vests and emotional support animals are, it's a very, very vague gray area and people don't want to tell you that you can't have your dog with you, even if it has emotional support animal vest on it because it's not regulated. And even if they are actually a support animal, then the person who's telling you you can't have it could get in trouble for telling you that. Right. The only thing that we're allowed to ask, I got training for this at work a little bit, was that if they're wearing a vest, you can ask the owner, is there anything that I can do to help? That is the one legal question that you're allowed to ask somebody with the service animal around the service animal. Yep. But you're not allowed to tell someone they can't enter without their service animal, even if you don't know if it's a legit service animal. But again, don't abuse it. (laughs) If you actually need one, then you can bring it in. So do you need a diabetes alert dog? There are certain criteria to meet in order to be eligible for an alert dog through specific organizations. And this is according to canineforlife.org. They list that you should have or you need to have a diagnosis of diabetes with episodes of low blood sugar. You need to be compliant to prescribed medications and testing protocols. You must be 12 years or older. You must have at least two to four episodes of daytime low blood sugar monthly without warning or awareness. And you must be willing and able to commit to a full-time service dog partnership, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, this is probably why my parents never seriously considered getting me an alert dog. I was high way more often than I was low. I only ever had two seizures, both in 2002, right before I got my pump. And I'm basically aware of all of my lows. Hypo-unawareness is extremely dangerous, and I can absolutely imagine the usefulness of having an alert dog, especially before CGMs came out. And that brings us to the next question, which is, can I have both a diabetes alert dog and a CGM? The answer is yes, you can. Kyle Cochran, an American Ninja Warrior, uses both his diabetes alert dog and his CGM, especially when he's training. He says that she is really great at catching highs and lows before they even happen, and the CGM is great for letting me see the exact number I'm at. Unfortunately, we couldn't find any large studies on which is more accurate or faster. I don't think they actually have any studies on that. In smaller sample studies, the CGM was faster than the dogs, but it's too small to draw any significant conclusions from. Personally, I'm more than happy with just my CGM, but if I did have hypo-1 awareness or if I was more worried about going low, then I would consider getting one. I am well-controlled enough that I don't think the cost is worth the benefit for me. And speaking of cost, how much do diabetes alert dogs cost? We mentioned earlier that they are expensive to train. Now, this little blurb comes straight from Beyond Type 1. The exact cost will depend on the particular organization and training program selected. But on average, an investment in a diabetic alert dog can cost anywhere from $8,000 to $20,000. There are nonprofits that grant dogs for free, but only require that you pay for your training with the dog. Dogs for Diabetics out of Concord, California, provides diabetic alert dogs and training for free if you qualify. And we'll link to that organization in the show notes. Usually, insurance does not cover diabetes alert dogs, which kind of sucks, but is also really understandable because they are so expensive and they serve a very specific subset of diabetics. And the overall cost quoted by Beyond Type 1 does not include the regular cost of owning a pet, which includes food, shelter, toys, vet vet appointments, 
walking it, basically all the stuff that you need to own a pet that is not included in the cost for just getting an alert dog. So how long does it take to get a diabetic alert dog? Well, this varies on the company and on the training. So it could take anywhere between six months to a year to get a diabetic alert dog. The training does take time, especially because the dogs are trained specifically to your chemical changes. So you're a part of the training as well. Some organizations request a scent collection kit to facilitate the training while the dog is not in your household. So how do diabetic alert dogs help? They alert individuals of blood sugar dropping, retrieve diabetic test kits or medicines, provide support while walking or help the person to stand or sit after a fall. They carry objects and they open and close doors, cabinets, and drawers. As you can see, diabetic alert dogs do far more than just alert the changes in your blood sugar. Like any other decision when it comes to diabetes, the decision to getting a diabetic alert dog is personal and depends on what you need. I did ask this question to a few Facebook groups, like what questions would they want answered if they were going to listen to this episode? And one of them was, what are the first steps to acquiring a grant? Now, before I got this question, I had no idea that grants even existed for getting diabetes alert dogs. But grants are when nonprofit organizations absorb the cost of the dog and provide a diabetes alert dog to a family for basically free, except for some organizations which still require you to pay for the training or a fee. A quick Google search found Dollars for Dads, a nonprofit focused on making diabetes alert dogs more accessible to the people who really need them and can't afford them. Their mission is to improve the lives of type 1 diabetics by providing grants to assist with the purchase of diabetes alert dogs. Their work focuses on two specific objectives, to continuously raise funds in support of grants for diabetic alert dogs and to provide grants to type 1 diabetics through their semi-annual grant program. Another organization we found was T1D Mod Squad. It looks like no matter where you go, the first step to getting a grant is to Google for them and actually apply. How do you tell if a service dog provider is legitimate? So I actually done research on this topic before because when I was little, my parents were like, okay, well, if you want a service dog, do a little bit of research and we'll look into it. Once I looked into it, we weren't really that interested in getting a dog at that point. So this is just a list of things that I came up with that tell you if a service dog provider is legitimate or not. One, if they use the correct terminology in describing a diagnosis and what they're training for. If they have a valid listed phone number or a way to contact them directly, look at customer reviews on other websites as well. If they have their core values listed, like proper training, family relations, or something along those lines. If they seem to want you involved in the training. If they have a certificate for public training, meaning like they can be around heavy crowded areas, on trains, buses, or any public access site. I would say if they have a social media page, check it out as well, because then you can get direct information from people who work there or people who know the site or program very well. And then if your dogs have regular checkups with a vet, if they provide a vet, I would recommend that you go and get your dog checked out by another veterinarian just to be sure. After all, this dog will be a part of your family and you wanna make sure they're as healthy as they possibly can be. And then if your dogs are 
long snout dogs, meaning if they have a longer nose. Most common are golden retrievers, labs, and larger breeds. If they're also drug sniffing breed dogs as well, just because they have that better ability to cite better blood sugars. Yep, bomb detection dogs too. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all about how much they can sniff. Yeah, exactly. That might explain why neither of my boxers ever picked up on my blood sugars because they have scrunched faces. Yeah, it's probably, I was like, when you said earlier, some dogs might not be able to, I was kind of like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> my sister just got a French bulldog puppy. It's really, really cute. His name is Diesel, but he doesn't have the nose to sniff for diabetes. <laughs> All right, we're going to move into our diabetes spotlight now, and our spotlight is on the fact that JDRF has reacted to the insulin cap for people with Medicare. People on Medicare can soon opt to spend just $35 a month for insulin. The Trump administration recently announced that Medicare recipients will be able to pick that option with a drug plan for next year, next year being 2021. And usually this happens during open enrollment, and open enrollment is in November. It means estimated savings of roughly $37 a month. It comes after insulin prices skyrocketed over, well, JDRF says the last couple of years, but it's really the last 20-something years, making it super unaffordable for some people. Leaders with the Diabetes Research and Advocacy Group, JDRF, say while this is a step, more needs to be done, and they're right. They say insulin isn't optional for people with diabetes. It's needed. This is correct. We, we do need it. JDRF has spoken out in the past about how expensive insulin prices are. Insulin could cost as much as $350 per vial for people without insurance, and many people go through more than a vial a month. It's forcing some people to actually ration their supply, which is not safe. Experts say the new changes could save people more than $446 per year, and that savings could be even more significant if you also spend the time to lower your A1C or to increase your time and range because that means you use less insulin anyway. For my company, open enrollment starts in November, but it might be as early as October for other companies. So it's important to make sure you know when open enrollment is for you and to opt into this program. JDRF says it's important that we get the word out. So we're helping JDRF get the word out that you need to enroll for this. More than 3 million people across the country with diabetes are on Medicare, which is a lot of people. And I also think it would be nice to have insulin costs capped for younger people. And Colorado is starting to do that. I think it's a cap of 100 a month for, for insulin there. But I could be wrong. Make sure you do your own research on this. I think this is a good step in the right direction. I don't think that insulin will ever be truly free because it is something valuable and people pay for value. I pay for insulin not just because I need it, but because it's worth spending money on it regardless of the price. My life is more than worth the cost of insulin. Jesse, what is our question for the audience this week? So our question for you, our lovely audience this week, is do you have any experience with service animals? And if so, what are they trained for? And that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. You can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 47. That's the number 47. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade, and our audio wizard is my husband, Tim. This is the perfect time to learn how to manage your mind. If you're stressed, burned out, overwhelmed, and want some help getting back on track and honoring your commitments to yourself, sign up for accountability coaching at inspiredforward.com coaching.
I'm on all social media as at Inspired Forward, and our email is Colleen at InspiredForward.com. And I'm on Instagram as at JJ underscore Crystal K-A-T. Please feel free to send me questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or about the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts since that really helps other people find us. And be sure to listen next week when we talk about how to find a good endocrinologist and signs you need to find a new one if yours isn't that great. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.